Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons. I'm a student of psychology and philosophy and a professional pilot. My aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. Anyone who has listened to all of the episodes of the podcast so far will have noticed a few core themes that define the subject matter. Obviously, one is psychology and the other is philosophy. But at a more fine-grained level, much of the psychology I discuss is centred on the field of positive psychology. That is, the ways in which human performance can be optimised so happiness, potential and achievement in life can be maximised. This is no accident. While every episode of the podcast can stand comfortably alone as a chapter that can be absorbed in isolation, just as in life, nothing exists in a vacuum. In actuality, each episode forms a a narrative of human discovery which links the myriad dimensions of philosophy and psychology that have got us to this very moment. One piece at a time, we unpack the mind and its historical significance and our understanding of it. You may also have noticed that psychology and philosophy, while separate and distinct disciplines, do have considerable overlap. Indeed, the field of psychology grew in large part from philosophy, as thinkers attempted to pathologise ethics, morality, politics and knowledge, and human-centred reality. They tried to find a biological basis for behaviour which can be studied by science, and this was by no means a smooth or natural transition. The field of psychology was long considered pseudoscience, and many of its findings continue to be disputed. As we discussed in The Scientific Method, episode 34, psychology finds itself on the fringes of empiricism, as much of what it attempts to understand cannot be easily reduced to quantitative measures analysed in the laboratory, and the very tools necessary for building theories in science may be inappropriate for understanding the complex social and inner worlds of people. Human behaviour is something that happens out there. It is individualistic and subject to competing biases, both of the subject and the experimenter. So to establish theories and conclusions is a fraught and contentious process. Nevertheless, psychology attempts to satisfy our innate desire as conscious beings to understand and give meaning to our realities. Fundamental to this is the study of what drives us, our motivations, our desires and our needs. For all of what we do can, in large part, be reduced to what propels us forward to act in the world and realise our potential, although we may not be able to grasp the manifestation of these notions. That is where psychology comes in, as it attempts to explain these motivations which we ourselves find so intangible and beyond conscious understanding. While we may consider ourselves free agents possessing sophisticated mechanisms of action, in reality, we are motivated by naturalistic needs only slightly more libertarian than those of our fellow animals. However, the motivation to fulfil needs beyond those essential for our physiological survival is the very thing that sets us apart. The gift Homo sapiens possess is to seek out and satisfy needs far beyond those necessary to keep us alive. Indeed, for many of us privileged enough to have full tummies and warm beds to sleep in, it is precisely these higher level needs which inspire our survival more than any other. In this episode, we consider our needs and how they motivate us. Our needs may take many forms, but when we satisfy the most fundamental of them, we find ourselves searching for meaning and purpose. 
For a small number of people, that path leads to fulfilment and transcendence of the banal needs that consume most others. But it doesn't have to be that way. Human nature is human nature after all. By understanding some aspects of our needs and motivations, we can begin to see our lives as not reaching towards some goal or endpoint where happiness awaits, but as a journey, a process toward realising our potential and satisfying our innate desire for meaning and purpose, but not at the end of the road, but on the road itself. To understand this journey, we're going to delve into the work of one of the most influential psychologists of the 20th century, Abraham Maslow. He fathered the study of human motivation and potential in the fields of positive and humanistic psychology. Maslow was the first of seven children born in Brooklyn, New York in 1908 to Jewish-Russian parents. Maslow described his childhood as unhappy and lonely. So that he would go on to study positive aspects of human psychology is somewhat ironic. However, his passion was in books and in learning. After beginning his studies in law and philosophy, Maslow switched to psychology as he felt it was a more practical, real-world discipline. He eventually obtained his PhD in psychology in 1934. The field of psychology had finally gained mainstream acceptance as a scientific discipline, by this time partly in response to Sigmund Freud's psychoanalytic theories which proposed that human behaviour is influenced in large part by subconscious desires hidden from our conscious thoughts. Abnormal and dysfunctional behaviours he considered were the result of fixation on one of five stages of development. We'll come back to this in a future episode. Maslow did not reject Freud's work, but he was certainly more open-minded. In particular, he was interested in understanding the human potential rather than studying psychological flaws and dysfunction. Colin Wilson writes of Maslow's early career. He began as a kind of lab assistant, working in the field of behavioural psychology, studying the reactions of apes, dogs and rats. His creative faculties seemed to have been prodded into activity by the dreariness of much of this research. The problem of freedom emerged by way of contrast to the controlled behaviour of laboratory rats. Maslow first achieved widespread recognition with the publication of his 1943 paper, A Theory of Human Motivation, where he put forth a hierarchy of needs which is ubiquitous today. It is this paper which we will turn to now in some detail as I outline Maslow's hierarchy of needs and describe what he really meant by it, and I want to dispel some of the mythology that has been built around it in the intervening decades. Maslow felt that a theory of human motivation must have at its centre unconscious drives, similar in origin to Freud's psychoanalytic stages of development, but focused more on motivation towards satisfying needs rather than obsession with certain incomplete or repressed development. Maslow did not assert that his theory was a be-all, end-all explanation for human behaviour, but just one that lies alongside and complementary to other behavioural theories. The theory offers an explanation or framework for how humans, in contrast to other animals, are able to exhibit behaviours that far exceed merely the ability to survive. There are five levels of needs in Maslow's hierarchy. The premise is that once one level of needs is satisfied, we are driven to fulfil the next. The five levels are the physiological needs, safety, love and belonging needs, esteem, and finally, self-actualisation. The lower order needs which is physiological, safety, love and esteem, he called deficiency or D-needs as they reflect a deficiency in our state of being. Self-actualization needs, on the other hand, a higher order being or B-needs. Once we have remedied our deficiencies, we can focus on maximizing our state of being and potential in the world through personal psychological growth. 
We'll unpack these a bit further, beginning first with the physiological needs. These are commonly depicted as food, water, warmth and shelter, but Maslow was more specific, referencing the direct requirements for life to be sustained. The bodies need to maintain homeostasis through blood sugar and salt levels, temperature and so on, and also to satisfy other variable physiological needs such as sleep, physical activity and maternal behaviour. Interestingly, he asserted the physiological drives may act as channels for satisfying other needs as well. Comfort eating, for instance, or even satisfying hunger by drinking water. Already we can see that the hierarchy is complicated by psychology, which is an ever-present factor influencing behaviour, even at the most fundamental levels of motivation. Even so, hunger is perhaps the most representative example of a basic human need, as it is so relatable. To go for a few hours without a meal is to be starving, when in reality most of us could survive for weeks without food. But to really be starving is to be obsessed with food to the exclusion of virtually all other thoughts. Maslow says, A person who is lacking food, safety, love and esteem would most probably hunger for food more strongly than for anything else. For a man who is extremely and dangerously hungry, no other interests exist but food. He dreams food. He remembers food. He thinks about food. He emotes only about food. He perceives only food. And he wants only food. I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. James Rowe was a US Army Special Forces soldier captured by the Viet Cong early in the Vietnam War. His harrowing account of five years in in captivity in the jungles of the Mekong Delta, much of it in isolation, focuses almost exclusively on his struggle to maintain adequate nutrition. His diet was limited to a daily ration of rice and nok nam, the pungent fish sauce characteristic of Vietnamese cuisine, and what tiny canal-dwelling fish he could catch. The leaves of a long-harvested potato plant were cause for celebration, and an occasional squirrel or snake given to him by the guards was Thanksgiving and Christmas rolled into one. Early in his ordeal, Roe was held with several other prisoners, three of whom would go on to die of hunger and illness from the squalid conditions in which they were held. Roe says, Food was the main topic as we recalled our favourite dishes, creating mental images of what were now like the zenith of Epicurean delights. I never realised how utterly delicious a crunchy peanut butter and strawberry preserved sandwich had been until now. Oddly enough, sex was far down on the list of topics, coming up only in conjunction with past amorous exploits, real or imagined, related as a part of a longer story. At this point, even the thought of sex was exhausting and not really involved in our survival, although it was another reason to survive. The most important thing was to continue to eat, no matter what the conditions, rice was the key to survival. This passage illustrates Maslow's thesis well. Even in 1943, when Maslow published his theory, he noted that for most people, certainly in developed societies, hunger is not something experienced other than at a trivial level, sometime between breakfast and lunch. Fortunately, most of us will never know what it is to be literally dying of hunger, and so be all consumed by this need. So what need motivates the individual when the physiological needs, and such a strong drive as hunger in particular, are chronically satisfied? Here, Maslow introduces a hierarchy of relative prepotency where the next higher-up motivation is not considered until lower needs are met. However, he would revisit this in later papers, and we will too shortly. So next up the hierarchy comes safety. This refers to the outward need for protection from harm, security and freedom from the fear of one's life or environment. This may be thought of as the freedom from the threat of anthropic violence, that is, from other people, or from natural disaster. 
but it also refers to the stability and structure provided by culture and society, and more organised forms of it like religion and ideologies. Humans crave meaning and context, a framework within which to situate themselves and form acceptable and appropriate patterns of behaviour. When these institutions are threatened, people become fearful and anxious and protest against the disruptive force. Just as the body strives for physiological homeostasis, so too does the mind strive for a consistent and familiar social environment in which to exist. War and conflicts which threaten not only physical but also ideological safety mobilise societies to set aside all other motivations in order that safety and security be restored and maintained. When both physiological and safety needs are satisfied, the individual turns again inward to fulfil the need for love and belonging. Love can be taken to mean simply human connection. It is not limited to romantic love, but extends to all forms of social relationships, including and beyond the family unit. Individuals need to feel part of a group or society, a need for belonging and acceptance. In modern society, where the basic physiological needs are taken for granted, a lack of love and belonging is often the basis for abnormal psychopathologies. Importantly, love is not the same as sex. Maslow says, One thing that must be stressed at this point is that love is not synonymous with sex. Sex may be studied as a purely physiological need. Ordinarily, sexual behaviour is multi-determined, that is to say, determined not only by sexual but also by other needs, chief among which are the love and affection needs. Also not to be overlooked is the fact that the love needs involve both giving and receiving love. Love as a motivating need is not about satisfying the carnal desires, but about connection and that crucial point of giving love as much as receiving it. The next level is self-esteem, and this takes two forms, the need to feel confident in oneself and the need to be respected and recognised by others. Personal esteem comes from a sense of worth and value and of freedom and independence. This may take the form of achievement or mastery such as gaining a qualification, skill or position. But this is closely tied to the esteem garnered from others which may be in response to those achievements or through the respect commanded by positions of power and status. Having a sense of self-worth and acknowledgement by others is crucial for normal functioning. This is not to say we should go around demanding people respect us or wear our achievements on our chests like medals, but it is perfectly natural, indeed necessary, to be proud of one's achievements. These needn't be just professional. The mother can be just as proud of raising two socially adjusted and healthy children as the business owner can be of opening a fourth store. The esteem we seek and desire which motivates us is highly individualised, personal to our circumstances and our inner psychology. What is universal, though, is the need to be respected as an independent and autonomous individual, a valued member of society, whatever the nature of that contribution. Maslow felt that the needs of esteem are especially important for young people who are finding their way in the world. Teenagers, for instance, value reputation and status highly, with success in the popularity stakes leading to high status and esteem, or failure to social exclusion and potentially even suicide. Maslow would revisit his hierarchy of needs theory throughout his career, and in 1960 he would expand the esteem needs to include cognitive and aesthetic needs. Cognitive needs are the drive to learn and gain knowledge, to understand and make sense of the world through meaning-making and patterns. Aesthetic needs are more philosophical and include the need to appreciate form and beauty. These two may sound esoteric compared to the others, 
and they're often absent from the typical sketch of the hierarchy, but they speak to the diversity of experience required to satisfy our intellectual curiosity. They may even blend into the highest level need, which we move to now, self-actualization. Self-actualization is a transcendent need that Maslow felt is the culmination of human potential. Self-actualization is about realizing one's potential and purpose. This sounds an awful lot like pseudoscience to suggest we have some destiny and we can only truly be fulfilled if we find and realize it. But there is something in the statement. I've spoken of it before in one of the earliest episodes I called Passion. We are all drawn to certain endeavors during our lives, things which we are compelled to do that never feel like work, that make us happier than anything. For those fortunate enough to make a career out of their passion, they can be extremely successful or certainly happy in their work. For others, it becomes a hobby which consumes much of their time. Maslow felt that when our D needs are met, those are the deficiency needs, remember, we will soon become restless and seek out a higher order need for self-actualization. He describes the condition as the desire to become more and more of what one is, to become everything that one is capable of becoming. Maslow interviewed hundreds of people during his career as he sought to better understand human behaviour, and he determined that maybe only 2% of people ever reach the level of self-actualization. Those that do, he found, exhibit around 15 common characteristics, many of which are described in the following passages. In Maslow's words, Self-actualizing people can all be described as relatively spontaneous in behavior, and far more spontaneous than that in their inner life, thoughts, impulses, etc. Their behavior is marked by simplicity and naturalness, and by lack of artificiality or straining for effect. This does not mean consistently unconventional behavior. If we were to take an actual count of the number of times that the self-actualizing person behaves in an unconventional manner, the tally would not be high. His unconventionality is not superficial, but essential or internal. Self-actualizing people are not well-adjusted in the naive sense of approval and identification with the culture. They get along with the culture in various ways, but of all of them it may be said that in a certain profound and meaningful sense they resist enculturation and maintain certain inner detachment. Self-actualizers have an outward focus. They are not consumed with managing internal problems and neuroticism, and invariably they are creative. Quoting from Colin Wilson again, he says, Self-actualizers are capable of more love than most people, and of deeper relationships. They enjoy solitude more than the average. They are naturally democratic, unsnobbish, friendly without bothering about social status, education, or politics. And in spite of occasional flashes of anger or disgust with the human race, they have a strong sense of identity and sympathy with it. They have a clear and pragmatic sense of the difference between good and evil, although they are capable of tolerance about other people's lack of it. They have a definite kind of sense of humour, which Maslow calls philosophical based on a sense of the absurd or grotesque, but they dislike negative humour jokes based on hostility or superiority or authority rebellion, presumably because they do not share the insecurity on which such humour is based. They dislike having to pay attention to negative things, either in art or life, to situations in which people are hurt, snubbed or made to feel inferior, since their response to such situations is a desire to get something done about it. It should also be made clear that self-actualizers are not immune to fears, anxieties, self-division, but these arise from genuine, objective problems, not neurotic imagination. They do not dwell on the negative. 
Maslow also found many self-actualizers enjoy peak experiences, and he spent much of his career researching this phenomenon. I've touched on this in the episode on flow, and we'll take a look at arguably Maslow's most important work on peak experiences shortly. But first, we need to iron out a few kinks in the hierarchy of needs, and clear up a few myths. You will no doubt be familiar with the visualisation of Maslow's hierarchy of needs as a pyramid. However, Maslow never offered such an illustration. The image of a pyramid implies not only a hierarchical system of organisation, but also quantification of the volume of each need listed. This is not the case though. The physiological needs, for instance, require relatively little to be satisfied, particularly in modern society. However, the needs of esteem and self-actualization may consume the majority of time and mental energy. If happiness resides at the top of the illustrative pyramid, then perhaps the pyramid could just as well be inverted, with the majority of time focused on fulfilling the ascendant needs, while lower subordinate de-needs take up hardly any mental energy at all. Visualising the hierarchy in any form is therefore problematic. It is in reality a constantly shifting and changing structure with different levels increasing and decreasing over a variety of timescales and with no real linear relationship between them. Even to represent the needs with a rectangle or square evenly segmented would not accurately reflect this unbound relationship. Truer to the theory would rather be a Jenga puzzle or layers of differently sized pancakes. Further to this, Maslow revised his theory later in his career to say that one need not accomplish lower level needs before moving on to the next. It is often enough to mostly satisfy a prepotent need when the restless motivations begin to urge one further up the ladder. Psychologists today prefer to visualise the hierarchy as a set of overlapping motivations, running in parallel, where one can move from one need to another and back again without any need for linearity between levels. These motivations vary according to the individual. For some people, esteem may be a significant drive that exceeds the needs for safety. For others, the need to give or receive love may be more important than the need for esteem. And highly creative people may even neglect their basic physiological needs in the pursuit of their art. Maslow also noted that behaviour is often multi-motivated by two or more needs simultaneously, saying that any behaviour tends to be determined by several or all of the basic needs simultaneously rather than by only one of them. Maslow's hierarchy of needs is therefore a far more dynamic and complex model of human motivation than the simple pyramid we have all seen in courses and textbooks. But I want to turn now to Maslow's study of peak experiences, which was one of his own greatest motivations for his work. Here he describes how he discovered it. When I started to explore the psychology of health, I picked out the finest, healthiest people, the best specimens of mankind I could find, and studied them to see what they were like. I learned many lessons from these people, but one in particular is our concern now. I found that these individuals tended to report having had something like mystic experiences, moments of great awe, moments of the most intense happiness or even rapture, ecstasy or bliss, because the word happiness can be too weak to describe this experience. These moments were all pure, positive happiness when all doubts, all fears, all inhibitions, all tensions, all weaknesses were left behind. Now self-consciousness was lost. All separateness and distance from the world disappeared as they felt one with the world, fused with it, really belonging in it and to it, instead of being outside looking in. Maslow provides an example of the peak experience as follows. The peak experience tends to be a kind of bubbling over of sheer delight, a moment of pure happiness. 
For instance, a young mother scurrying around a kitchen and getting breakfast for her husband and young children. The sun was streaming in, the children, clean and nicely dressed, were chattering as they ate. The husband was casually playing with the children, but as she looked at them, she was suddenly so overwhelmed with their beauty and her great love for them and her feeling of good fortune that she went into a peak experience. Maslow found that being needs are made up of being values, which are described by individuals following peak experiences. Maslow was intrigued when he realised that the words people used to describe their self-actualised experiences were the same words used by mystics and religious figures throughout history. Yet historical accounts often referred to dogmatic, transcendent episodes with spiritual or supernatural qualities. That peak experiences are described by a mother observing her family, or a musician hearing the bars of a song flow together, or even a mathematician seeing patterns emerge from data, speak to the universality of the condition. It is not a supernatural quality. It is a natural quality which we all experience in everything from the most ordinary of circumstances to moments of highs and states of flow. I'm sure you know what he means. It's those moments of complete epiphany, of joyous detachment, when we're overwhelmed with realisation and insight in some narrow but highly focused way. We somehow step outside ourselves and see things as they really are. Things make sense. We just get it in that moment. And when we later try to articulate what we felt and saw, we are often at a loss. Here are a few of the being values which people use to describe peak experiences, which Maslow summarised in his work. See if you can relate to any. Truth, beauty, wholeness, oneness, aliveness, perfection, order, richness, joy, eternal. I've compiled the whole list into a single document which you can find a link to in the show notes. It's worth exploring and seeing uh, how much of them can relate to experiences which you may never have considered as peak. In the final years of his life, Maslow suffered a heart attack and he was faced with his own mortality. It was during this period when his most basic needs were under threat that Maslow noticed that he did not descend through the hierarchy as he had modelled, but he actually gained a greater appreciation and insight into the importance of self-actualisation as a result of being so close to death. This was something of a paradox, which he realised undermined the entire structure of his model. His ideas began to evolve as he struggled through the final years of his life, until eventually another heart attack killed him at the age of 62. His final works, scattered throughout journal entries and collections of notes, suggested that self-actualisation was not at the top of the hierarchy. It was only the final step toward the highest layer of human potential, which he called transcendence. Psychologist and host of the psychology podcast, Scott Barry Kaufman, recently published a book called Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualisation, and it delves into Maslow's life and work and extends upon these theories. Kaufman provides a new visualisation of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, not as a pyramid, but as a sailboat, where the deficiency needs form the boat which protect the occupants from the stormy seas of life, but it is the sail which drives the boat forward to growth and new directions. If you have a leaky boat, then you aren't concerned with navigating around the world, you are just trying to stay afloat. But once those needs are satisfied, the metaphorical sail can be hoisted, and self-actualization can be achieved through focus on satisfying the desire for exploration, love, and purpose. These three growth needs live not alone, but work together synergistically to form a whole person greater than the sum of the individual parts. While Maslow spent much of his time contemplating this relationship, he ran out of time before he was able to fully articulate it. 
It falls instead to the subsequent generations to extend upon his foundational work and to better understand how self-actualization can be implemented across many lives and become fundamental to the human endeavour. Kaufman has taken on this challenge with his reconceptualization of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, with a particular focus on what Maslow suggested was the true end state of the peak experience and self-actualization, transcendence. Kaufman provides a definition of transcendence. He says it's beyond individual growth and even health and happiness and allows for the highest levels of unity and harmony within oneself and with the world. Transcendence, which rests on a secure foundation of both security and growth, is a perspective in which we can view a whole being from a higher vantage point with acceptance, wisdom and a sense of connectedness with the rest of humanity. There's a strange dichotomy here, this idea of connectedness. Throughout the ages, mystics have described transcendence as a state of religious nirvana, a point of ultimate spiritual growth, typically characterised by a loss of the self, a complete oneness with the universe, where the mind transcends the body and the humanness of consciousness and becomes pure and free. But Maslow found through interviewing all of these people, as have others including Kaufman, that people who describe this experience also talk of being connected with humanity, as if the state of letting go or transcending the self also connects all individuals together. This seems to come from the satisfaction of lower order needs like esteem and love, where one is no longer concerned with fitting in or belonging. The ego is so satisfied to just be, it is not searching or craving for acceptance, so it becomes less important. It becomes much easier to detach from it and instead see how related, similar and connected we are and that we can be. Moments of pure joy and transcendence can be enabled by instead focusing on the beauty and harmony of life. While many people may not be able to immediately recall a time in their life which they would describe as a peak or transcendent experience, virtually all of us will remember a time we were in awe. Perhaps it was when we stepped onto the viewing platform of a landmark skyscraper and looked down across the sprawling expanse of a city. Or perhaps it was watching a sunset, where the pink, orange and purple hues just set every sense ablaze. These moments are all around us all the time, every day, if only we could set aside the distractions that keep us focused on our inner deficiency needs and could instead look up and out. But there's no hack here, no trick that can bypass the natural flow through the D-needs. Nor is transcendence about winning life at the expense of others or because of them. There is no competition to ascend above others. Self-actualization and transcendence is not even a destination to be reached. It's a goalpost, a motivation for how to live, so that the best version of you can be realized and that you can do the best for others. Kaufman calls this healthy transcendence, which he defines as follows. Healthy transcendence is an emergent phenomenon resulting from the harmonious integration of one's whole self in the service of cultivating the good society. What he's saying is that the journey towards self-actualization and ultimately transcendence is not all about you. In fact, it occurs in spite of you. Maslow himself was very much concerned with how realizing human potential is about finding one's place in society and maximizing one's contribution to it. It's like when we reach the highest level of needs, we carry a piece of all the lower order needs along with us. We need to satisfy our hunger to survive, but we can reach transcendence by sharing a wonderful meal with others. We can satisfy our social and belonging needs by getting married, but when we embrace our love for our partner and revel in the joy of our laughing children, we can have a truly peak experience. All of these things are connected to make a person whole and complete 
and able to enjoy a rich and empowered life. Maslow had this to say in his 1966 paper, A Critique of Self-Actualization Theory. He was reworking his thoughts on the topic throughout his life. He said, It must be stated that self-actualization is not enough. Personal salvation and what is good for the person alone cannot really be understood in isolation. The good of other people must be invoked, as well as the good for oneself. It is quite clear that a purely intrapsychic, individualistic psychology without reference to other people and social conditions, is not adequate. I think for some people, the very act of satisfying D-needs leads directly to a peak experience and self-actualization. Consider, for instance, the explorer, who deliberately journeys to remote and dangerous places and is deprived of food, water, shelter, safety, love and society. Somewhere in the midst of this deprivation of basic needs, the explorer finds oneness with themselves and the environment. They achieve self-actualization through the very act of appreciating everything that is needed to survive, like the ultimate breakdown and rebuilding of Maslow's hierarchy. This example demonstrates in stark relief the importance and integrated nature of the hierarchy. We can find ourselves traversing between D and B needs throughout our lives in a dynamic way, like our needs are coupled with our motivations for fulfillment and purpose the transcendent properties of exploration, love and purpose that Kaufman proposes in his reconceptualization of self-actualization. But that is life's challenge to us, one of many, to hang on to those fleeting moments of transcendence. Rather than strive for peak experience then, where we rise to incredible heights, but only for brief periods like Chick sent me high's flow state, we are better to aim for plateau experiences which are enduring, There is clearly a place for both peak and plateau experiences. However, peak experiences tend to happen spontaneously, while the plateau is more of a conscious state of mind. The plateau describes an outlook, a state of being that finds beauty and insight into what is happening all around us, all of the time. It could be thought of as mindfulness, staying present and witnessing life as it happens. Maslow offered a range of ways of living life in the bee realm, as he called it, the being realm, from which the plateau state can easily follow. Kaufman provides an extensive list of these, along with many other details and tips in his book, so I highly recommend that you give it a read. You can find a link to it in the show notes, and I'll share it on the Facebook page as well. But one of these which really resonated with me is to consciously choose to live in the being realm of growth. Of course, we can choose to live in the D realm, the deficiency realm. Most of us do because life gets hectic and we focus only on our basic needs. We forget that life has so much more to offer us, but it is up to us to make the choice to seek it out. There is no point at which you will one day wake up and say, great, now I have enough money, the kids are all sorted, and I have my job dialed in, so now I can get on with doing the things I've been putting off, but looking forward to for that time when I've ticked all of the other boxes. That day will never come. We have to consciously elevate ourselves. This can only be a choice. But it doesn't mean that we forget our obligations and worries, just that we take a moment, often, to live the life we really want. We can't change our lives in an instant, but we must connect with the idea that life is not a series of levels to be accomplished so that one day we will eventually be in a position to enjoy it. It is up to you to do that every day, but it is a lot easier than you might realise. One way to do this is to go into a museum or gallery and just look at art. I mean, really just take the time to look at something someone else has created. Take it in and appreciate it. Reflect on what it means to you 
what other place you can be transported to through the creativity of another person. You can do the same thing in nature, the greatest creator. Just look at a tree, a flower, the sea, a mountain, a sunset. Take it all in, moment by moment, and notice the details. Allow yourself the time to be in awe of something, to appreciate it fully with all of your heart and being. It only takes a few moments, and you can repeat it as often as you like, for free. I remember once I was sitting on a beach and trying to comprehend every grain of sand as far as I could see up and down the beach, just sand, sand and more sand. A seemingly infinite, unchanging expanse of beach made up of millions or even billions of tiny grains of sand perpetually fixed in a carpet-like layer. But then I looked down directly and paid close attention to that one small section of beach between my feet. And I noticed that it was actually a very busy place. The breeze disturbed the grains of sand, and when one moved, another followed, and then another, so there was a constant shifting and rearranging of grains of sand, like dozens of mini avalanches occurring everywhere that I looked. Then a small insect emerged and skittered across the grain, searching for something, before going on its way and disappearing under the surface again. Then a piece of dry grass blew across the scene, disturbing a few more grains of sand. So, on this tiny patch of beach, a miniature world was playing out rather than a static, unchanging expanse. When I looked closely at it, I saw that this one section of beach was a hive of activity. And this same scene was playing out in every square metre of this beach as far as the eye could see. I didn't realise it at the time, but in that moment, I'd had a peak experience, where I stopped thinking about my inner world and really noticed the world that was going on around me, and I was blown away by it. The world is not the world. It is billions or trillions or an infinite number of tiny worlds all happening around us all the time. We just normally don't take that time to notice. I'll wrap up this brief exploration into human needs and the work of Abraham Maslow here. But I hope this has given you a little more insight and depth into the hierarchy of needs, which we've all become so familiar with. While we should all strive to reach the heights of self-actualization and transcendence in our lives, the reality is, We are often consumed with satisfying our needs for safety, love and esteem. Our focus is on our inner worlds and we really, if ever, reach a point where we have the emotional and psychological freedom or even the opportunity to realise our full growth potential. However, it is there waiting for you, a well of joy ready to be tapped into when you're ready. So in the meantime, take notice of those moments of transcendence when you forget about needs altogether and just exist in the moment. Peak experiences give meaning and purpose to life, as in those brief moments of clarity we see what really matters and we experience real joy and oneness with the world and with each other. Nothing is so important as forgetting about yourself, even for the briefest moment in time, because real life is happening out there. If we could only turn our gaze outward, pause and take notice. So savour those moments, because we only get so many. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email theherenow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.